Welcome to the Ferguson Response Network podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Mack. We are a weekly podcast devoted to supporting citizens working to create a lasting social change through sustained civil disobedience and civic action. I'm joined, as always, by my awesome co-host, Ricky L. Hines II. What's going on, Ricky? Uh, the usual, usual white people are fucking up. <laughs> <laughs> Well, one of our guests were there. White, even white people are sick of white people's bullshit shirt today. Um, so, but we'll get to that in just a second. Uh, if you do not know Ricky, which you should by now, Ricky is a Los Angeles native. He's a U.S. Navy veteran and avid Googler blogger. He's also the founder of the Americans United Again movement, and he hosts two other podcasts: the Americans United Again podcast, and he is the co-host with the lovely Sherelle of the AUA Hope podcast which I'm going to be on the next AUA Hope podcast, which is awesome. And um, if you're looking for this show, you can find us on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Just search Ferguson Response Network. You can also find us on our website, fergusonresponse.org. And you can find us on the AUA um, app, which you can download in the Google Play or uh, Google Play Store or in, via Android. Either way, you can get that. And we're on there. And if you have actions coming up in your area or you're looking for actions supporting the Black Lives Matter movement, um, you should go to fergusonresponse.tumblr.com. And as Ricky mentioned, we are going to be talking about white people this evening on the show. It's our 18th episode and we have gone quite a few weeks and months without talking about white people in, in their entirety. And today's that day. So we have a really exciting panel with us. First, we have... Chris Crass. Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Chris Crass writes and speaks widely on anti-racist organizing, feminism for men, strategies to build visionary movements, and creating healthy culture and leadership for progressive activism. His book, Towards Collective Liberation, Anti-Racist Organizing, Feminist Praxis, and Movement Building Strategy draws lessons from his organizing over the past 25 years. We also have Very White Guy, also known as Drew, on here. Hello there. Good evening. Uh, Drew is a member of the Twitterati, <laughs> and uh, he's also one half of the Interracial John podcast. He works to actively deconstruct supremacy and oppressive behaviors and thoughts in himself and in cultural and societal institutions, and he, full disclosure, is also my husband. And we also have Anastasia. How are you doing, Anastasia? I'm all right. How are you guys doing tonight? We are doing good. And Anastasia is a feminist, advocate, activist, student, mouthy redhead, which is 
that's like the best. Uh, she's passionate about many forms of advocacy issues, including LGBT, sex, gender issues, issues of race, poverty, environment, animals, right, animal rights. Uh, her strength line understanding all of my causes through their intersections. And she says her weaknesses are in finding the energy and balance to carry all of those flags. Uh, and we're really happy to have all three of you with us today to kind of go through um, this really, I would say, layered uh, and nuanced topic. We're going to go through a couple of news items. Um, one is that the April police violence report came out. Uh, I don't know if you got to take a look at that, Ricky, but this is from uh, mappingpoliceviolence.org, which we are lucky to have courtesy of uh, DeRay, Netta, and Sam um, Sway. Um, so for April, there were 31 black people killed by police one every 23 hours in the month of April. That was a 14% decrease uh, from the previous month, which if you remember us reporting that, that was a 71% increase last month. And um, there's still a four times higher chance of being killed by police for a black person compared to a white person. 42% of the black people killed by police were unarmed. Um, and police violence is still higher than usual. So on average, it's still on the uptick if you're looking at some longitudinal and long-term um, statistics. Um, not much more to say to that. You can go to mappingpoliceviolence.org backslash reports, and these will come out every month. They do have uh, the list of all of those that were killed, um, all 31 individuals, their age, their name, uh, the city they were with, and also a link to the details of what happened. Um, and a news source where it was verified. So you can get all the information there. Again, mappingpoliceviolence.org backslash reports. We will have that on the show notes. Um, the other interesting thing that I saw going around everywhere was uh, Think Progress had an article called The Myth of the Absent Black Father. Did you get a chance to look at that, Ricky? Uh, I did. Um, and we actually, this is this is the second year in a, in a row to my recollection that this has proven this because um, I know we covered it last year on the AUA podcast. Mm -hmm. It was one of the first things that, I think it was like episode three or something. Um, so, I mean, it's just, this for me comes as no, no, um, no surprise because shit had happened last year. <laughs> right. Right. So um, it basically it's a CDC study um, that talks about the role American fathers play in parenting their children. Uh, and most of the CDC's previous research on family life, um, had focused ex exclusively on mother. So it's the first time they really talked about what hands-on dads are doing. Um, and that included uh, black or African-American fathers. And so by most measures, black fathers are just as involved with their children as other dads in similar living situations or more so. So when they're talking about children under the age of five and they have different things like fed or ate meals with the children every day, bathed, diapered, or dressed the children daily, played with them, or read to the children, um, it was pretty even when you're looking at black, white, um, I'm talking very small margins, uh, when they're living with the children and when they're not living with the children, there's some a few differences. But under similar situations on the whole, it's pretty much the same, which I think is interesting, uh, considering the uh, propaganda. I'll, I'll be nice and say propaganda that's out there. Chris, had you had? Uh, did you take a look at this report? Had you heard about it? Is this something you've run across before? No, I haven't seen it. 
Yeah, it's pretty interesting and just something that I've been thinking about lately. And I say it all the time, like when I see information out, it's my anytime I'm I'm falling back on information I had previously assumed as fact, I'm always like, nope, let me go look at it because it's probably totally wrong because everything I've been taught is really not correct at all. And so this is just another example of that. But again, I'll have the link to, to that Um it reminds me of that whole welfare queen, you know, um, yeah. myth as well, because it just isn't yeah. true. And um, it's nice when you have numbers to back it up. Yeah. 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 Well, I'll just say I mean, yeah. an- anecdotally, there was a really uh, a viral image of this black father uh, braiding his daughter's hair while having a younger child baby in a baby carrier. And it was just this like beautiful, beautiful image of this, you know, of this dad who is taking care of both of his kids. And there was, and it went viral. But there was this huge backlash saying that this was staged, that there's no way a black father would know how to take care of the, of his kids. All this like racist stuff was all over uh, in response to this beautiful image of this dad that went viral, um, you know, on the web and just all this like incredibly racist stuff attacking. Uh, there's no way uh, that this could be a real picture or a real dad mm. propaganda. It was just so ugly. Yeah. And to, to add, um, when we covered this last year, I kept hearing the argument that, oh, well, they're lying. Uh, and really it was in reference to black fathers, but the, I don't even think, and this actually came from a black from a black person, but this is to teach you exactly how white supremacy works. He he said that they were probably lying. He said that you know black men were probably lying, assuming that black men were more likely to lie than anyone else. <laughs> you know that that's that's just not categorically false. So the answer to his question as to why they lie were anti-black conditioning, right? His own Pretty like much. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's funny because um, somebody else that had seen me post this on on one social media network or whatever, she post she reposted it and she put in the you know her comments that she had believed this myth of the absentee black father, and then when she sat down and thought of every black father she knew, they all were very active in their children's lives, and she like questioned herself like. I don't even have an example of an absentee black father that I know, yet I allowed myself to believe this. That's how strong the conditioning is in society that even with her own empirical evidence that she had witnessed, you know, she I think she listed off and tagged all of them like 20 men that she knew were very active in their children's lives. It's like, oh, wait a second. Why was I believing this? Even the people I know don't fall into this category, yet I had allowed myself to think that. It must be true because, you know, well, and, I mean, it's a I don't say it's a trope, but it kind of is. And you hear it. I don't say a lot, but I hear it from, you know, from black individuals, black, you know, like elder, like I don't say like states people. But, you know, like, oh, the respectability. Yeah, politics thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You hear it. You know, absolutely. We got to you know, do this. And we got to do that. But they're conditioned, too. So they're not immune. Yeah, they're, they're absolutely not. I think like a lot of it comes from. Just the way that American culture is structured now, mm. and like even believe like people will fight so hard to believe something that they perceive as truth, even though numbers, you know, clearly prove that it's not. And it's because 
you know, we're taught that in this in this world, in this country, that you're, there are certain truths that you just have to you have to accept no matter what, and that that's it's unrealistic. It's not even that is that is the dumbest fucking thing a society could ever do, honestly. Mm. I heard that. Uh, the last. Oh, go ahead, Anastasia. I mean, I found that a lot of people don't um, want to look at things in a realistic way mm. because um, one of the, the key parts of the study was that it looked at people in similar circumstances. And a lot of times if you, instead of dividing everything by race, if you look at people that are in similar social environments or um, economic environments or whatnot, the, the different races, whether it be um, fathering or, I mean, uh, like, for instance, drugs, drug use and stuff like that, they tend to be even across the board. But we like to pretend that white people are doing it less or that that like fathering there are just as many in, in certain political in certain situations there are just as many absent white fathers or present white fathers however you want to put it um or sometimes even more so mm-hmm. and 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 with the, even a higher percentage of the population but we don't like to look at that we don't we just like to have this really narrow scope without any perspective totally out of context and then condemn a whole like group of fathers based on data that's flawed and yeah. and that and that we know is flawed and we don't do that in other areas we specifically do that to people of color mm. very yeah, true because and i wrote about um the piece that i did on um what was it disproving the myth that black people were lazy using the labor utilization statistics like the numbers just don't add up none of this shit ever adds up when you actually look at it you're shown it so many times that you just and you're told it so many times that you just kind of go along with it mm-hmm. and black people it. know it's not true but we're like it's the butt of every joke <laughs> we say we 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 preach this shit even though again once you go back and look at it out of the 75 black fathers that you may know and like 10 of them are are deadbeats yeah oh well Well, what bothers me is that i have to even rationalize it i spent it wasn't on this topic but was another topic i spent a while um my partner and i and my brother like at a restaurant we were supposed to be eating together and we ended up spending the whole time on napkins doing math to get percentages and stuff so i could make a point to prove something to someone and um you are awesome well, I mean, it was a good time. I, I, it's been like none of my my college work has a whole lot to do with math, so I had to reach way back and remember some things from high school that I haven't used in a while, and that was stimulating. But um, at the end of it, you know, I got I got all that information. I got to put it out there. I got to make my point, and hopefully, I got to educate a few people. But after it was all done, I said, I just spent like an hour doing this and I shouldn't have to, like, mm. I shouldn't have had to sit down and, and break it down to numbers for you to see people's yes. humanity and look at them as human beings. Like, and so I love statistics yes. for that reason, but I also hate it because I shouldn't have to break it down to numbers and statistics for you to see a human being, for you to see black fathers or any of these things as people in situations and, and not as just people that you want to villainize specifically. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it when I when, when, even when I did the piece for um on on the labor utilization statistics, that was like the first the first sentence that came out of my mouth is there's no fucking reason I should have to prove this basically. 
Um, no. Because it's just not. It, it's it's so disingenuous. It really is. Hmm. Because if you it, you can't sit you can't say that you're not racist if you believe in one racial group that somehow having or having more or less melanin in your skin makes you you know better or worse. It's it especially when you consider the fact that nobody you again like you said on a systemic level on a on a community level if you put the same economic constraints the same um police constraints you'll have a baltimore in the whitest city in america with the same conditioning yeah, yeah. exactly right yeah context there, matters there would just be no stigma right the, the, the difference in is honesty, there's a stigma and the... you'd have it a lot faster over a lot less mm. yes yeah you're right you're absolutely right yes. Anastasia. that's that's true oh boy all right we're gonna get into all that in a second i had one last thing and i think actually will segue us into our main topic which um came out today a community forum on racial issues is planned sunday after flyers with the slogan hashtag white lives matter were tossed onto local lawns and driveways last week. Um, this is from Westport news. Um, so they have a forum planned, um, in the library this Sunday to kind of discuss this. Uh, it's just kind of interesting that they don't know who did it. They don't know why, but this was a response to whatever, um, organizing work that has been being done. And now they're all getting together to discuss, I guess, uh, turning the flyer's message in their words completely on its head. Um, it could mean you don't matter or we matter more, but that's not what this town stands for. So, uh, they're talking about this some more. It's kind of interesting to me because I think this whole, all lives matter situation has reared itself in many circles. Um, and will definitely allow us to to start talking about our topic, which is white people and its and their relationship to Black Lives Matter and the movement itself. Um, if we can, with with our uh, three white panelists, just to go around and talk a little bit about um, just your um, entryway into the movement and and what made this something that became important to you. So, Chris, why don't we start with you? I'll go ahead, Ricky. Before they do that, I just yeah. wanted to make a quick point mm -hmm. about the, uh, the the White Lives Matter oh, flyers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you've listened to the show before, you know I'm ignorant as hell. <laughs> like, I would be the motherfucker to wake up in the morning and be like, White Lives Matter? <laughs> Nigga, we know that already. What is, what is this? What, are, we just, are we just putting obvious messages on, on flyers now? The Haters sky is hate, blue. Water's gonna be wet. What is <laughs> You know, yeah, like, and on. then the an anonymity too. Also, was just like Jeez. particularly like really okay. Um, only because I've had that yelled at me at many an occasion over the last six months, and it's it's distasteful to hear. But then to have someone do it so cowardly, it's just like insult to injury. To be perfectly honest, I'd but. yell back. We know that already. <laughs> That's usually what <laughs> I do say. Okay, it's we got it. Um. Uh, <laughs> So, Chris, yeah, tell us a little bit just, you know, briefly about, you know, how this work became important to you and kind of your entryway into into the movement and, and racial um, equality and, and liberation, generally speaking. Yeah, I mean, uh, 
a major uh, turning point in my life. I mean, I was already a, a social justice activist in terms of seeing the inequities of, you know, the economy and anti-war, uh, marching against the first Gulf War in 91. Um, but then really it was the Rodney King, uh, you know, internationally witnessed uh, police brutality and then the verdict uh, that came out 30 minutes from my uh, home in the suburbs of Los Angeles, you know, 30 minutes from my house in Sunny Valley, all white jury, um, you know, non-indictment uh, of uh, four, you know, white police officers who brutally beat um, black, you know, motorist Rodney King in Los Angeles, you know, went up in flames and the people's uprising and my whole colorblind worldview that I had been taught was the way you're supposed to interact with race as a white person, you know, it was up in flames too. Mm. And, you know, interacting then particularly with, you know, a black friend who, you know, we talked about race a little bit here and there, but with the Rodney King verdict, he really powerfully, you know, spoke to a lot of white social justice activists about his experiences uh, of what this verdict means for him as a black man, his experiences of racism. And, you know, he really encouraged me and a lot of other uh, white social justice activists who were his friends around deeply committing to anti-racist work as white people. Um, and that was just a really, it changed my life. You know, I mean, it, was, uh, it set me on a trajectory that I'm still on. And so the, the racist uh, violence of the state has been a part of my own process. But it's also, you know, these are moments of mass possibility of awakening and action and organizing within white communities around racial justice. And I saw that with Rodney King, and I've seen it, you know, time and time again. And so when these moments happen, whether it's Trayvon Martin, uh, whether it's Ferguson, these are moments when there's possibility of white supremacy in the headlines and black liberation on the move, where there's the possibility of moving white people uh, in large numbers towards racial justice consciousness. And so um, that's awesome. That historic, I mean, that, that changes the political reality of the country. It's not just that these kind of brutal, violent acts are happening. They're happening all the time. Mm. But a people rising up and black working class communities in particular, it changes the entire political landscape of the country, which again moves us towards a more liberatory uh, agenda and puts racism on the agenda, which then just for people like me as a white anti-racist who really sees trying to move white people as a major priority these are moments to really just like let's do all we can to throw down. Mm. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, how about you, Anastasia? Sorry. Um, my evolution. I don't know if there's like a defining moment to it. Um, you know, I think I was raised like a lot of typical um, naive white people are, and um, so you know, outright racism being like um, yelling the n-word or things like that very easily easily recognized uh, and I would recognize those and, and, and say they were wrong and um, I lived my childhood in California but by the time I was I was I spent my teenage years in Indiana which is an interesting state because there is a lot of racial tension especially out in the countryside. Mm. Um, but there's also, it's also just mostly white people. So there's racial tension, but 
it's not as noticeable because you don't have the larger portions of population. And this is something I didn't really realize until I moved out of Indiana and I come back to visit and I'm like, holy shit. Um, but I mean, there was a point where I lived out, out in the country and I went to a school in the middle of nowhere and there were maybe two kids that um, weren't white. And, and they had to take a lot of bullshit. And I remember standing up for them and being the terrible ally because, you know, I get to stand up there and then give myself the pat on the back like I'm such a good person at the end of the day. Look what I did. And I'm not giving to consideration that my privilege of being able to step out of the situation and be comfortable in my own skin in my school all the time and they don't have that going on. None of that occurred to me. Um, and so I started out at that level, um, which I think is a pretty shitty level. And as I grew up, a lot of it started when I moved down south and started, you know, it's a lot harder. And when you live in a population that's like 90% white people, it's easy to have your head in the sand and not understand it. But in moving down south, it's a lot harder for me anyway to not notice. Hmm. And I start picking up on differences. And that's also when I started getting into feminism and a lot of different things. And so all of this um, started gaining momentum at the same time. And as I'm noticing, um, feeling like my stories as a woman are invalidated by men who don't want to listen to them or hear them or um, what I'm talking about, women in the workplace or anything like that. I'm also noticing people doing that to the same thing, like to people of color, doing the same thing. Uh and I'm starting to pick up on things. So it was a slow, as I evolved in all these different areas, evolving um, in this area as well. And then I would definitely say that in the past two years, um, that slow evolution has picked up to a sprint. Mm. Just because, you know, with Trayvon Martin and everything that happened, I was already, I was coming to a place, but everything that has happened and the realization that this isn't, this is not new. Like the with Trayvon Martin was probably the first time that I really got sh like shaken up enough to really pay a lot of passionate attention. You know, I already knew that things like um, I'm rambling and I'm sorry that um, if a, a, a little white girl were to go missing, she's going to get all the news attention, all everything. But if a, a child of color goes missing, they have a lot more trouble getting attention or if someone is hurt or things like that. I already recognized that and saw that as a problem. But what lit the fire under my ass is when that happened and I started really paying attention and realizing that this one incident that is such a huge tragedy and has me moved to tears and anger and all these things is not a new incident. This, <laughs> is, this has been going on for a very long time. And the more that I dove into that, the more that I realized that I'd been a really shitty advocate. Um, and all this time thinking that I was great. Um, and the more I wanted to understand how to be better at that, just, and, and so as, and then Ferguson, everything that's happened since then, it's finally, it's, it's, people are talking about it in a way that we've never talked be about before. And I think that's helped everyone grow and everyone evolve, but I can't think of a single specific incident that really woke me up. It's just been, it's been a snowball that started small and naive and ignorant and it's just gotten massive and like rolling in my life, coinciding with all these other snowballs and all these other areas that all just kind of interact. 
if that makes any sense. I love that analogy because it's a snowball, so it's particularly apt. I it love totally, it. it. It started small and puny and pathetic. <laughs> and, now, and now I'm a force, and I hope to become a bigger force. But That's awesome. Very white guy. You can call me Drew. I know. I'm teasing you. That's okay. It's apt. <laughs> it is apt. Uh, so you're asking me? Yes, you're next. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in a sundown town, you know, went to high school with 3,000 white people and like two black people, didn't uh, have a whole lot of interaction, and uh, there was a, a, we had him on our show, Interacial John Ennis, a, a, a sweet mate, probably the first friend uh, of color I had in my entire life, and very generous of time and, and uh, education. I asked all the ridiculous questions that, you know, you don't, I do not advocate doing this, you know, 18 year old Andy made these mistakes, <laughs> 40 year old Drew knows better now and does better. But I would say, you know, I was, although very aware, uh, I mean, obviously married to, to a woman of color, uh, and we'd have, you know, you and I had, uh, a lot of discussions about race and things, uh, you know, in a profound and deep way that I, I don't know if you can have without it being your best friend, your wife, like, you know what I'm saying? Like there's a, a comfort level of, uh, of being able to just be very unguarded with you. And that, that helps a lot. So I had always been very, very aware, but, uh, I think it was even two years ago we went and saw, uh, broken on all sides about the prison system here in Philadelphia. You were doing work with the ministries and legislative in New Jersey to ban the box, which you succeeded on bail reform, which you succeeded on. And, uh, there's like six of us watching the movie and you were, jazzed up and you're excited you're like okay we're gonna work on this and prison industrial comic and i kind of looked you dead in the eye i was like it's just too big you know i was blissfully apathetic and uh ferguson mike brown's death uh, i was very dialed into twitter at the time and uh i don't know i just felt very compelled to action i felt very uh a little bit guilty for being apathetic uh, and not doing anything and as anastasia said and chris said there are moments in time that you know, how we analogy you want to call it, strike where the iron's hot kind of thing. People are actually talking about it. They're making connections from brutality, police brutality to supremacy and talking about uh, race and you know, even the lexicon, the prison industrial complex. I don't think you heard that three years ago. Uh, so I, I think it's, uh, I, I feel just compelled to, to do something. And uh, I, I feel very insignificant and, and in, uh, ill-prepared. <laughs> I just read a lot and consume a lot and listen a lot. And uh, I keep effing up and trying to do better. <laughs> That's good. I've taught you well. Um, just kidding. Uh, well, it's interesting because in each of your stories, you actually mentioned something that leads us to the next topic I wanted to kind of broach, which is, you know, what are some of the large stumbling blocks for white people in understanding the Black Lives Matter movement and its purpose? Um, and Chris, you mentioned um, just kind of being separate from it in terms of your surroundings. Um, and Anastasia, you mentioned um, this idea of being an ally, but not a very good one and not really looking past that that level, being able to step outside of it. And Drew, you mentioned apathy as, as a stumbling block for you. So given that you've also all, um, you know, agreed that this is a, a, a new day in terms of the kinds of conversations that are happening, the news stories that are out there, um, the way that people are insisting that this conversation continue and go on. What are the stumbling blocks that are out there right now? And anybody that wants to answer can take it. What do you, what do you guys see? What are you hearing? What are you interacting with? I'm sure the three of you interact probably with more white people than Ricky or I do. So this will be an interesting uh, exercise to hear what you guys are, are thinking on that subject. 
That's a loaded question. Hmm. Well, can I add something? Yeah, because go I ahead. Think, I think there's a there's a common thing that everybody kind of alluded to but didn't explicitly say, and that was where they got their information from. Like to, with regard to like mainstream media and how they manipulate the the narrative. Mm-hmm. So you mean that obviously all three of them sought out alternative been led astray source, by right, 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 right. Lied to. right. Well, that's a big stumbling block. Certainly, information. Um, I would say it's a stumbling block, but not a big one in today's no. day and age. It's a, it's a stumbling block. It's something that's there if you choose to have it in your way, but it's not something that literally stops you. And I feel like because there's so much hesitancy um, with the vast majority of white people, there have to be some big ones that are really in the way. And I don't think media's that insurmountable. I'll, I'll let Chris talk because no. he just wrote a, an article uh, for the Good Men Project that was really pointed and appropriate uh, about moving white people to action. But I always think, you know, as a stumbling block for white people in general, uh, and I t- end up talking about white fragility a lot, Robin D'Angelo's work uh, specifically just because I, I see so much of it. It resonates with me. I see it in my own self. Uh, and I think it, it derails a lot of critical race discussion and dialogue with really good, well-meaning people. And I would say uh, centering on whiteness and just the, the fact that whiteness is the norm and the default. Uh, people forget that. And, and I've forgotten it. I've, you know, I've had my privilege showing at protest actions and various things. You know what I mean? Like It's just a, a, because it's, for me, it's so omnipresent that like I can almost forget about it and like step in and be like whoop (laughs) here goes my whiteness like just because it's Mm -hmm. uh, you know it's almost like work to to not be centering uh, and thinking of yourself as the normative the default uh, and filtering everything through my own lens of cis het white male uh, just because that's how I've done it for 40 years it's I have to actually work to not do that Mm -hmm. and Chris what do you what do you think what do you see as the stumbling blocks that you come across well, I mean, I think, uh, I, mean, I think there's like the stumbling blocks of just like white people in general, and there's the stumbling blocks of like white people who want to do the right thing. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, I think in terms of like white people in general, I mean, for me, it's a, it's, it's, I really think about, you know, with white people, my anger is about white supremacy and the structures of white supremacy and the history of white supremacy, and really trying to be careful that my anger and my, my sadness and my rage and my pain towards that, that I don't then enact those emotions, weaponize them, and attack white people mm-hmm. um, by, like, you know, raging at white people who say the wrong thing, raging at white people who don't know and don't, you know, raging at white people who even put up a sign that's like, white lives matter, you know? Be, being able to be like, okay, there are, there's a history, there's institutions that are deeply committed to white people being invested in a white supremacist worldview, which you know white people then interpret as just a normal worldview, and a white supremacist system that's deeply committed to rewarding white people for disconnecting from the lives of people of color and punishing white people when they start to care too deeply about people of color and start to step out of line from white supremacy. Well so said. My friend, you know, so... When, when, when the, with the Rodney King verdict, one of the other things that happened at that time, you know, my friend Terrence, who really spent a lot of time, African-American, you know, who really spent a lot of time talking with me, 
you know, he said it wasn't just that, you know, I needed to be anti-racist. I needed to recognize the ways that white supremacy hurt me as a white person. And that really was like a huge, you know, moment, you know, for trying this like 18 year old kid. And I'm sort of like, well, isn't racism like a black problem? And, you know, he was like, racism teaches white people to be completely illiterate economically, politically, culturally about the most important social justice movements in the history of the country, about the lives, the experiences, the communities, the cultures of folks of color, and to be completely disconnected from the leadership and the visions of people of color movements, people of color leaders. And so, you know, when I was like, you know, talking to him about, you know, who are black leaders, <coughs> he was like, I'm not, t I'm not telling you about black leaders to help you understand who my leaders are. When I talk to you about Ella Baker, Frederick Douglass, Stetson McClark, Ida B. Wells, these are your leaders. And white supremacy teaches you that you have nothing to learn from these people. Mm. So the, that, that's a huge stumbling block. Another stumbling block is the most, the most, the most passionate white people in my life growing up who talked about race were racist. So anti-racist were awkward, uncomfortable, afraid, and I understand that, and I love white people's awkwardness about anti-racism, because rather white people be awkward trying to engage anti-racism than white people being passionately, passionately racist, like so many in my family and so many of the people I grew up with. So there's a lot of stumbling blocks then where white people who come into consciousness are full of guilt, full of shame, full of all kinds of stuff, and then rage at the white people who look just like them and talk just like them two weeks ago. So a big part of it is being able to learn how to heal through this stuff, to be able to love white people enough to want to get the white supremacy out of them. And then once you start trying to figure out how to get the white supremacy out of white people, it's less, you, you start spending less time being angry and annoyed and pissed off at white people and you start spending more time trying to figure out the psychology of white supremacy that we need to take on to move white people towards racial justice, to understand racial justice as part of saving their humanity, connecting to a world that could be better for all of us, and seeing how white supremacy is a poison and cancer in white communities. Yeah, we get like a clap for that? That was awesome. Ooh, it's a cancer. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. And I think that you and, you and Drew kind of touched on something that is um, really interesting, and that's the fragility of undeserved power and undeserved privilege. Um, because I think in the back of everyone's mind, they're, they they want to justify everything that happens to them, good or you know, especially for the good, as if they deserved it. And it's never been a matter of white people not deserving what what they get, so much as black people not getting what they deserve. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean, like. And the other thing, too, is that that fragility causes people to just want to turn a blind eye because it's so it's so much easier to have to, to hide from being from to hide and, and not have to worry about that fragile shell being broken than to deal with having to pick up the pieces. Uh, Anastasia, how about you? Stumbling blocks that you've seen or experienced yourself. I know you talked about, you know, the snowball analogy, which is great because that means you've gone over quite a few stumbling blocks yourself um i wrote down a few things i have <laughs> while everybody was talking i was listening and, and trying to to think um and especially 
in the area of trying to work as an advocate because I told like I told you earlier you know when I was young I thought that I understood what being against racism was and I wasn't racist you know and I help out and I was really I feel like sometimes I did more damage than I did good um, and maybe more than sometimes and I think that there are several stumbling blocks in that area um, one of the things I wrote was the the narrative or like the historical narrative we get the 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 pro-white Martin Luther King myth. Like, you know, white people love to quote Martin Luther King, especially when you have things like the Baltimore riots and stuff going on and use, like, these little tidbits of things that he said, and that's what we ride on. This is what he was about, but we don't actually know him. We're not actually... We don't read his letters. We're not taught his speeches, and then we turn around and then we use this figure against people of color out of context. Um, and we use it to validate ourselves. So I've seen so many white people, including myself at one point, um, using Martin Luther King and a false idea of who he was or how he felt as a way of validating my behavior or my feelings towards a, a community or what people are doing or saying. I think that's a huge stumbling point block for a lot of people that think they're good people and pat themselves on the back at the end of the night and you know, and think they made this really awesome point when really what they just did was terrible. Um, yeah. We also, we get a lot of encouragement. We get a, we get a lot of self-confidence from schools, from our families, from, um, from the media. We are told that we are great. We don't, we're not given a lot of reasons to have self-doubt. And from day one, you know, we're taught like to take the lead and to take charge. And that's what I see a lot of people that um, have all the good intentions. And I put that in quote mark, quotations um, doing wrong is trying to take charge of something that they haven't taken the time to understand or that they don't have any right taking charge of. Um, white people don't have any business telling people of color how they should be um Ex like handling <laughs> the situations that they're in or, or how many times have I heard um, white people try to tell people of color how they should handle the N-word, who should say it, who shouldn't, all these sorts of things. Like that's not our place, but we're, we're brought up with these ideas that we're great and we should be in the lead. We're given all this confidence and we don't know when it's not okay to take that gauntlet and run with it when it's not our gauntlet. Mm -hmm. Um. Mm -hmm. We have a low tolerance for discomfort. So we really like the feel-good idea of um, standing against racism. But we don't like um, facing our own self-accountability. We don't like to be uncomfortable. And really, with everything that's happened and everything that still is, if you're in it and you're white and you're really genuinely, earnestly in it, you should be fucking uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Like, all of the time. There's no reason you should ever be comfortable because, I mean, we're all involved and we're all, um, whether through complacency or ignorance or all sorts of, we've all contributed to this. I've contributed to the issues we're dealing with right now. I know I have. I shouldn't be comfortable. I should be, like, have my skin crawling all the time, sick to my stomach, just dealing with, and I am, I feel stressed a lot. But we were, as soon as working about on these issues and everything makes white people uncomfortable, then they get upset. And then they want to call things out. And then they want to make points. I say they, we, I've done it. Um, 
we should, we have this idea um, that there, I've seen so many people that think that they should be a part of fixing whatever problems they think they see in the black community um, when that's not my place to take the lead. Where What I think that I, as a white person, can be involved with is fixing the white community so that the white community gets out of the black community's way. My mm. part is not to yeah, take well leader- Yeah, my, my part is not to take a leadership role in in any, like, my my part is to deal with my contributions and the contributions of other people who are coming from, from the same perspective and viewpoint that I'm coming from so that people of color can rise up because very, very capable and removing the hurdles. I'm not a white savior. I shouldn't be. I shouldn't even begin to act like one. Um, the other thing that I wrote down was um, this like cycle this, I, I call it the my black best friend myth. Oh, um, no. Yeah. So, but we talked about it earlier. Um, uh, Ricky, you talked about, uh, was it a friend of yours or a professor? I don't remember um, that you were talking about black fathers and that he said that the study that came out, it had to have been a lie um, yeah. because yeah. He, he bought this narrative. And especially when you're really young, um, and if you live in an area like I did, I told you I lived in Indiana. You live in an area where you have very small percentage of a uh, population that's people of color at all, much less black. Um, then you you tend to have young kids that buy the narrative, not only just because they hear it all the time, but it's almost a survival technique. I uh, there was a girl I work with that's been having this great awakening lately, and she was telling me, you know, when she went to high school, she had friends that would say really racist things to her all the time, and she just laughed it off and shrugged it off. And if she felt bad about it, she just felt like she was overreacting, or that's what they would tell her, and that must be true. Um, and and now as she's growing into herself, she's realizing this isn't fucking really. It's not okay. Um, and it's been beautiful to watch her evolve. But I know that as a young kid, I had friends that weren't white, but they bought the narrative um, Mm -hmm. that I was selling them, that everybody else was selling them, and that reinforced my own ignorance. Um, So it's like, and then my ignorance being reinforced made me sell them the narrative even harder, and I didn't even realize I was a part of that cycle, and neither did they. Um, And so there's all like these things that aren't really easy to uproot that I think stumble are stumbling blocks for <laughs> white people. And I know there's a lot more than that. And I hope I express them semi-decently. No, those are all really good. No, yeah. And thank all three of you for mentioning that. Um, one thing that sticks out in my mind is something I say a lot that I have found with white people is that there has, there has been in their history, a context, um, and equation in their mind that feeling good is more important than doing good. Mm. And it creates a a really, uh, um, you know, kind of whacked um, sense of morality in those moments when it is uncomfortable um, because they don't want to feel bad. And so they go where they can still feel good. And that's, that, that creates a lot of, you know, um, unsafe spaces for people of color um, in terms of their interactions with them because that's when the humanity um, is able to not be seen anymore in those in those instances and um, 
Anastasia, you actually reminded me. We had, um, Rucky, if you remember, when Bassam uh, Mastery, who's a live streamer from Ferguson, was on, and he talked about growing up um, in the St. Louis area before 9-11 happened, he was considered white in his community. And he heard all of the things that um, the white students would say about the black kids in his high school, for example. And then 9-11 happened, and in a day... He became the other, and it was like the blackness. It was like he said it was like the twilight zone, the 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 instance that he became something that he wasn't the day before, out of no choosing of his own, and it gave him this, you know, moment of clarity that he was like, oh my god, this is this is what's been going on this whole time, but because I was on the other side of it, I didn't even contemplate what it must be like the other way and how wrong it is. So you, you just reminded me of that when you were talking about, um, you know, your friend that's been waking up to it. Cause this, there is that moment of like, Oh no, that's not right either. Um, maybe one day I'll read it on the John, but I had found some essays that I had written to get into boarding school and I was reading through them and they just were like so steeped in like respectability politics and just like the worst ideas about everything. And it was beyond just young thoughts because that's what happened with anybody. But really it was so like unnecessarily judgmental. And like I was trying to show that off. I, I saw that as something that I needed to show off in order to be impressive to people. Huh. So um, it's it, it affects all of us really deeply. And it's a lot that people have to go through both black and white and really anybody to come to terms with, yeah. you know, the ways in which supremacy has, you know, wrecked our society. And, and when Chris refers to it as a cancer, it's a perfect um, analogy for it because, um, you know, you don't know it's there at first and then you realize it's taking over everything and it takes a lot yep. of work to get rid of. Um, and you don't realize how many systems have been, completely you know affected by it and in the all of the different ways that it has and it's not very fun or painless to cure either so um that that works there too um go ahead ricky i wanted to make a point on um something anastasia said uh, with regard to um white people and how they just they use the white version of mlk um this isn't this isn't really anything new though uh, this this is again this is the the fragility of undeserved privilege um or undeserved power because if you look there were i was actually listening to a podcast and it was basically a, a history lecture from uh mercer university professor douglas thompson and he talked about how slavery played a role in or religion played a role in slavery and how a slave owner and a and a slave could read the same passage, and um, in particular, he was talking about uh, Exodus, and see themselves as the Jews, see themselves as the good people, even the slave owners, because you know no one wants to see the oppression that they rain down upon others. It's uncomfortable. I think they still do that today. I don't know if you've watched Fox yeah. News ever. Yeah, <laughs> there's still the mm-hmm. there's still the white male persecuted Christian vibe going all over the place. Yeah. I mean, yes. I, it's all about everyone's trying to hurt white men, and it's terrible. Here, the, here the genocide. There's a there's yeah. a war on white men. Somebody said that in my house once. <laughs> oh my god! They haven't been here wow. since. 
I was gonna say without irony, it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't no, it, it was not. It was not. Did ironic. he really use the phrase "war on white"? He, yes, I believe the phrase was "war on white men." Was what he said. What is it about? War on this? white men's war on feelings, white men. motherfucker. War on white men's feelings. <laughs> what is about? What is it? They have it really hard. <laughs> it's tough out there. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh! Wait, wait. Speaking of which, oh, where's no. my sound? Oh no! Oh no! Is your board up? No, <laughs> no, Ricky. Oh yeah, you know what's coming. <laughs> You have oh god damn it oh no why <laughs> why did you have to be born white oh, oh, oh the suffering i mean how did you survive as a rich white asshole in america <laughs> i don't know how i do it <laughs> <laughs> oh too funny too funny thank you for the sound bites as always ricky um well, I guess this is another good segue. Anastasia, you're really good at setting me up. I love it. Uh, to talk a little bit more and delve into white people coming into movement spaces. Um, and where you've seen that, do you think it has been getting better? Do you think those conver- are those conversations happening amongst white people? Because I do think it's one that that's where it needs to happen. Um you know, because honestly, the black people that are doing this work, we've got a lot going on and we have a lot we're doing. And it's one area that I just don't, that I really like to encourage other white people to take on. Um, so, Chris, I'll start with you and just see, talk a little bit about, is that part of the training that you do? Do you talk about those issues and, and what, what are some of the big takeaways you're trying to instill when you're talking about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, particularly, I mean, at this point in terms of where we're at with, 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 I mean, Trayvon Martin was a huge was a huge moment with Ferguson. Now with Baltimore, I mean, there's literally thousands and thousands of consciously white anti-racist folks all over the country, who some of whom have been involved in this work, you know, for two, three, four decades. But a lot of people who have been very politicized and radicalized in the last, you know, few years, um, who are really trying to step up and you know, organizing community um, community events um, that are really geared towards trying to reach white people um, around the issues of Black Lives Matter, um, trying to, uh, you know, discussion groups for white activists around who want to get involved in Black Lives Matter, and then also trying to help move people, move white people into action um, and, and trying to figure out how to do that in ways that are responsible, um, you know, because it's like there, in this kind of a, a, a moment, there's a lot of nuance. You know, there's simultaneously a lot of messaging um, about the importance of centralizing black leadership, black experience, and uh, black lives in, in, in communities, which is necessary and vital. And there's also a really strong message, which is also important, which is that white silence equals compliance. And so there's a lot of white activists, though, that are trying to figure out how to be involved and are trying to be like, okay, so I don't want to be silent because that's compliance, but I also... I'm really nervous about whether or not I should speak because is that taking away space from black people? And so right now it's, it's really trying to encourage a lot of white anti-racist folks who have been doing this work that we need to step up and help support white people coming into this movement to figure out how to, be a, how to, how to play a positive role of supporting, of showing up, of fundraising, of amplifying the voices of black leadership, black community, but also really bringing this work, you know, um, as we've all been talking about, the importance of white anti-racism, bringing this work into white communities. 
and really yes. trying to – instead of the most passionate uh, white voices who talk about race being racist, we need courageous, passionate, visionary, love-based, I mean on-fire white anti-racists who are fighting for the hearts and minds and souls of white people away from white supremacy. I mean the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in the 60s started talking about the importance of freedom schools in white suburbs to help free white youth from racism so that there could be a multiracial movement for a different kind of America. And so I'm seeing those kind of freedom schools, and that's part of what I try to do in my work, is we're there's a lot of people who are trying to create those kind of freedom schools in white communities to make white people aware of the history, aware of the leadership from communities of color, and, and, and very importantly, to help white people today understand that there's been a long history of white anti-racists who we can look to for as role models, for inspiration, for guidance, and not just have the message be when white people face race, it's about guilt and shame. That's understandable, but then we need to light our guilt and shame on fire with our rage for this kind of system that's dehumanizing us, learn about our ancestors who are white anti-racist, bring their lessons, their experience into the sport today, and start moving white people towards racial justice, not from a place of hating on those white people, Ann Braden, longtime white anti-racist Southerner, she said, you can't organize people you hate. So if you're a white anti-racist and you hate white people, you got to work through that because you got to organize our people from a place of what this system has done to them and what we, and why we want them to get free and what liberation could mean for them. Hmm. And so, you know, that's, yeah. that's the place that I come from. And that's the place of, you know, white people are making mistakes. We all make, you know, we all make mistakes. And white people, when their mistakes are amplified by the unearned privilege, as we've been talking about. So the white people's mistakes get amplified and have even more damage and then are reinforced by a white supremacist power structure. Nonetheless, white anti-racists can't be just turning their back on white people who make mistakes. We need to go towards them and help them figure out how to be in this movement in a way that is going to help be productive for black leadership and be productive to build an overall liberation movement for all of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I like I completely agree because I don't think that it should be black people's responsibility to fix white supremacy. It should be, I, I mean, just functionally, we don't have the numbers to do it, but <laughs> on top of that, it's never been our job. We've never had that power. It's always been our power to make this country realize just how fucking racist it is. Anytime we remind the country, shit gets done. And I, I think that that's something that we have to continue to push. And that's not just black people, but you know, white people as well. We have to remind this country just how fucking racist it is. You know, they they want to the 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 overt racists want to come out of the woodworks. Let them come out. They they're really good for publicity. Remember. <laughs> so you know, I I just we have to remember that the harder we fight. Um, we're going to have some very unpleasant people come out for us. Yep. Yep. But I also think it, when that happens, I always think to myself that there are white people that are like, whoa, that this is the people that agree with me. Like on some level, when you see that happen and you're like, oh no, they're saying the same thing that I think, but I'm not like them. There's this moment of, cause I think that all the time I'm like, you look at this and this, these are the people you want to sound like yeah. there must be a moment of kind of like, Oh, wait a second. This doesn't sound like it's going to work out for me aligning myself with this. Maybe I should reevaluate. Yeah, it's the, I'm the good white person. It's the, I'm, I'm a good person trope where it's like, I, the, 
the word missing from that is white person. You <laughs> know what I mean? Like it's oh, that I'm not that type of racist. Uh, I'm 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 a polite racist. And Anastasia I, said I the same am thing. Bigger free racist. It's uh you know it's that binary thinking, right? Good, mm-hmm. bad, one or the other. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds in between, and I personally. You know, so like, am I racist? No, of course I don't, you know, believe and support in white supremacy, but I'm still indoctrinated and, cult, you know, uh, uh, conditioned into white supremacist, you know, ways of thinking in a myriad of ways that I don't even know. And it exhibits itself, you know, sometimes unconsciously in ways I don't even know. So, you know, I don't think of it as, I think Anastasia, you might have said something like this, like, all I know is I do less harm than I used to, <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm. I'm not perfect and I try to do better and I'll learn and keep doing better. And all I know is I, I do less harm to people of color and black people than I, I did, you know, six months, two years. And I hope in 10 years I do even less harm. Right. So it sounds like there's a need. And I do think I hear Chris's call kind of to be pointing out the ways in which supremacy is hurting white um, society as well. I think that that's a really important point to make. And it's not one I think is being made enough. Um, in terms of talking about white people and their um, interaction with supremacy and with anti-blackness. Um, and so I'm curious as to where you think there can be a stage set for a tipping point in that becoming more of the discussion. Um, and I think that this is something that the Black Lives Matter movement is about to go through right now. I think we really started out because of the situations that we were dealing with and still continue to deal with with regard to police violence and extrajudicial killings, that that became what the movement was because this is urgent and people are dying and it's very serious. And obviously it's um, contributing to the dehumanization of um, people of color in the entire country. But there's layers to black liberation that have nothing to do with police violence specifically. It's still violence perpetrated against people of color, but it's not just about police violence. You know, when, um, so many um, black children live in food deserts and have no access to fresh vegetables and good food. That is a violence yeah. against the community. You know, there are many layers to this. And I see now these discussions happening where people are talking about these larger issues and also the um, psychological component of anti-blackness and what it means and what what would it look like if we were free and how would we be in the world and how what would it be like to have that breath that you could take and not feel stifled all of those conversations are happening so uh, i'm wondering on the flip side because to me the other part of uh, if that's the black side of that that portion of the conversation i think that the the white side of it is what you're talking about chris which is what that this is a cancer, that it isn't good for humanity, that it's not good for white people, that's not doing them a service. Um, yeah, no, I don't think we point that out because it's it's almost insulting for us to have to point. That no, out and I'm not saying we should be pointing it out, but I'm yeah. asking where's the groundswell? Because you can't get to that point to have those discussions until you have a, a large amount of, of a community talking about these things. Yeah, um, they yeah. don't come up easily, just like these, that the ones that I just mentioned about food deserts and all, you know, education and all of that. They don't come up happenstance. They come up because for the last seven months, black people have been doing nothing but talking about these issues. And that's when they come to the fore. That's when intersectionality comes up. It's when all of these things that we have to deal with and terms of getting free so where 
where are the spaces being created by white people and for white people um, to do that, to get to that point? Um, is there lots of meeting going on? Is there a focus on doing meetings? Is there a focus in, in grassroots? Are there organizations working on it? I just want to understand a little bit more about how things are being done and if they're not being done as much as the three of you would like, how you think it would be best executed. Honestly, where I'm at, I feel like I'm in a desert. Mm. And I want to be optimistic and tell you I'm seeing good things. I'm having these conversations. I'm creating these spaces. Um, and, and, and I'm not, I'm not in my area. I see a lot online. I see a lot on social media. I'm not in my area physically. I'm not seeing a whole lot go on in that realm. And I would love to see it change because I'm tired of having the conversation by myself. Mm. I don't know how you guys feel. Or what you've experienced. Yeah. There are groups, right? You know, there's a lot of, Chris referenced, a lot of good people have been doing, you know, pushing this rock for a long, long time. Uh, you know, he's probably better adept at, at calling certain groups, you know, attention. There's the Bay Area uh, Solidarity Network is doing a great job with stuff, uh, in particular for white allies. And I don't really like, I'm putting air quotes around the word allies. I don't like that <laughs> term. White, white accomplices, I think is better. But um, there's like surge, the standing up for racial justice. And, I, you know, I personally, I, I, I can't cast aspersions because I'm not, you know, my, what I'm able to do and how much time I've got, I, I'm not one to throw rocks in a glass house kind of thing. But I, I do wish sometimes I'd, I'd see more. Uh, and Chris wrote about this like a week ago about uh white people taking so there's that notion that we don't want to center we don't want to you know take the mic away from people of color and black leadership so we educate ourselves to that point but then into silence and inactivity and sort of like okay we'll wait for black folk to schedule a, a march and we'll join it versus hey white people let's have our own march kind of thing and uh i i do wish collectively and again i can't i can't be pissy about it because i'm not doing anything i'm you know, you could just turn it on. Like, what have you done, Drew? Like, nothing. You're right. Guilty. No, but this isn't. I don't want to have a conversation about blame. That's not where I'm. I'm, I'm trying to come at this from. I, I am. I really want to talk about. Um, that's why I started with stumbling blocks because I think those are the conversation. If if this isn't happening at the level that you guys want it to, then the conversation really should be about why that is. And I and I only say that because this is what the Black Lives Matter movement has gone through, is continuing to go through, and it's not easy to motivate people even when it's for their benefit and i can tell you i've said to many a black person yes i'm marching for you too even though you just told me what i'm doing is stupid and won't do anything you know there are those moments that happen so i guess that's that's it's not a uh, okay well like i said stone dispersion I, I, or I, anything I, I do wish there was more uh you know and chris said it in the same sort of way you know vociferous uh, white uh, anti-racism activists, uh, whatever you want to call it, doing uh, their own things in uh, in ways to bring Black Lives Matter movement and message to white spaces that you know isn't being uh, receptive to that message now. And I don't know how exactly how to do that or what pieces need to be in place, but yeah, I wish it well, was more. Let let me ask this question. And I, this is it's going to sound fucked up but it's really the only way that <laughs> I I'm love the preface at, 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 at this juncture but like how do we convince 
white people that black like how 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 do you go about convincing white people to to go out and march for for black people um in in the names of black lives matter when white people won't even march in the names of themselves i've had so many white liberals sit there and say well why is it that you never hear about the white guy who was killed by by the police okay well look we know this shit happens so where the fuck were you why didn't you start a protest? Why are you Why are you on a black person's back about this shit? Like that's the how How do we get to a point where you guys are even willing to fight for the cause itself on a moral principle? Because I think that in and of itself would would solve a lot of problems without having to without having to get a whole lot of white people to admit that Black Lives Matter. And I think that's um, what Chris was trying to show get at. Them yeah, I got I got that from when Chris was saying talking yeah. to them about the ways in which supremacy is bad for their lives, is bad for their community, is bad for their society. Um, even if they're able to separate themselves from black people, in reality, these things are not good for any of us. So what? No, because they set precedents. Right. So Chris, what what? Um, there were two questions thrown out there, but I, you know, it's, say whatever you have to say. I'll put it that way. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I, mean, I think in terms of, like, where is this stuff happening in white spaces, I mean, there are, I mean, everything is, it, you know, you got to start with the fact that, yes, everything is way too small for what we, in fact, need, but you have to start somewhere. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it's it, it, one of the things, there's, there's small groups all over the country, I mean, you know, throughout the South, throughout the Midwest, um, small groups of folk, of white folks, that are working on trying to create educational spaces, community spaces that are, you know, so like in Pittsburgh, for example, I have friends who are really trying to like support each other um, as white anti-racists to increase their own capacity to be uncomfortable in talking with their family, with coworkers, with people at their churches they go to, um, un- you know, fellow union members about why they why they believe in the Black Lives Matter movement um, and not only just like talking about the Black Lives Matter in, in terms of, you know, why is this important to me as a white person, but then trying to find more and more white people who they can invite to come out to Black Lives Matter uh, demonstrations and events. And so I think part of it is, you know, I, I come from a, a, an organizing tradition that's very, that, that really prioritizes relationships. Our relationships to each other are so important. And so there's like, you know, different of us, it seemed like, you know, all of us on here, um, you know, all the white folks, we all talked about at some point our interactions with black people or people of color in our life um, really, really had an influential impact on us. Well, those are relationships. Well, the way that white supremacy operates is that most white people do not have personal relationships with people of color. And mm-hmm. so part of it then mm-hmm. is for me, you know, like the experience I had with Terrence, you know, my friend who talked to me about, you know, what it meant to be black with the Rodney King verdict and about racism. I mean, I've shared that experience and his story uh, with tens of thousands of white people um, because, you know, he said, you know, white people are going to hear white people differently when they talk about race. When white people listen to a black person, they're defensive. They're, you know, they want to deny everything that that, that that black person is saying. They don't believe in their inherent worth and dignity. They don't even believe that their experiences are true. But when a white person says the same thing, a lot of times the white people will hear it and be like, oh, well, you're just putting that out as a neutral person sharing, sharing experience and knowledge. And yes, that is messed up. But nonetheless, white people need to be aware 
that they can talk to and reach white people differently and so take space with white people but then bring those white people back into hearing the voices and experiences of black leadership in the black lives matter movement and so that's happening in a lot of places and so yes it needs to keep growing and it needs to keep getting networked and it needs to keep getting more courageous and bold so i mean every majority white uh you know a uh, uh, church um we need to be finding how to get more church people up in those spaces giving sermons as white people about how their theology calls on them to be in the black lives matter movement we need to find ways for them to be correct and, and doing that in a way that is sharing this is my experience this is where i'm coming from sharing their journey this is how i came into the black lives matter movement this is how i see it as an absolutely vital life-affirming movement to restore multiracial democracy to restore uh, uh, you know the, the vision of beloved community speak powerfully to how you came into the black lives matter movement and then make an appeal call on ask white people to join you to open their hearts to it and so i think it's just wherever possible trying to figure out where you have leverage where you have influence where you can uh, what relationships you have to move white people from a place of inviting them to be on the right side of history inviting them to be with the most life-affirming movement that's currently in the country. The Black Lives Matter movement is a fundamental life-affirming movement saying no more to this death culture, no more to this death, uh, these, these deadly structures of racist violence. Um, and so just really trying to figure out how to get yourself up in those positions. And when I talk about you know the impact of supremacy, white supremacy on white people, I do that consciously knowing that we need to center the experiences of communities of color around race. And my task is not to organize communities of color. My task is to organize white people and to try to figure out what's going to resonate for them, what's going to make this a conversation where it's not talking to white people in a way that it makes it sound like I'm saying, you need to care about other people. I'm saying, yes, care about other people. And the fact that we don't care about those people already is an indication of how sick this culture is. Mm. And so it's, mm. it's, trying, it's trying to simultaneously create solidarity with communities of color, but in a way that's not saying, and now we need to go help these people of color, but saying these struggles in communities of color are vital to our overall health as a people and society. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, great. I don't think we ever really focus on... Um, I don't think anyone really does focus on... the appealing to the humanity of white people because it's their humanity is affirmed every day um right the reality is is that even that humanity that that humanity which is affirmed every day is based on a lie there is a but there is a humanity of uh, um that underlies it we all share um and so i think yeah it, it is very important to kind of focus on that I, I would lot- add I would add is if if you're gonna have someone do something like that, um, like to go in front of a congregation or something like that, to give them a, a disclaimer that you can't be mad at black people for being upset about this, so whatever whatever comes directed at your way isn't directed at you personally. Yeah. This yeah. is not about you, get out of your feelings. You know, this is about our humanity as a people and these people are the ones on the sh- on on the uh the shitty end of it. Yeah. Shittier, rather. 
Yeah, shittier. Mm. Very true. Um, well, I wanted to just have some time to do a, a roundtable a little bit, just open up the discussion and talk about uh, really whatever you guys wanted to talk about on the subject of the Black Lives Matter movement. I do want to mention one thing that just was announced. It was announced, soft announced yesterday, big announced today, which is um, the Movement for Black Lives National Convenion, which is going to be happening in Cleveland, Ohio, July 24th. 26 it's a host of um, organizations and um, activists that have come together to put together this um, in my opinion going to be you know uh, historic on a global historical level um, convening of black people from across the country um, and uh, I'll just read what they say in terms for the events. As black people from across the country led a wave of resistance that spread around the world, a new chapter is be- being written in our long journey towards liberation. Our people demand a collective vision that matches the intensity, scale, urgency, and promise of the moment. Open and many and created many voices. The movement for Black Lives convening is a space to realize that promise fully on our own terms as black people. Join hundreds of black folks from around the country as we convene to shape our present and chart our future. All black lives are needed, mind, body, and soul. So, um... I this... wish I could go. <laughs> well, you could go. I mean, yeah, I'd lose my job, but yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a weekend. You could take a weekend. You think about um, it. Nah, because I wouldn't be able to make it if I'm only taking a weekend. I don't make that much. No. That would have to be a drive. A drive out. <laughs> it's a far drive for you. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's it was just announced, and it's kind of a new radical um, thing that's going to be happening. I literally have not spoken to a single person that has not been like, yep, I'm going, or, oh my God, I can't believe I can't go. So it's very exciting, um, and I mention it because uh, for the Black Lives Matter movement, this is the next step for the movement. It is... um, for a movement that has been largely decentralized and with tons of leaders, um, this is this is just going to be something amazing. People who have had all of these connections via online, via um, virtual um, interactions, just to have all of them in one place talking together about these issues, it's, it's really going to be something spectacular. I'm very excited about it. And you'll be hearing lots more about it from us. Uh, but so I mentioned that and I, I wondered, is, is something like that needed um, for white people to convene, to get together? Those of you in these smaller groups, people like Anastasia, who are feeling like a lone voice. Is, is it time to come together to try and do something like that, to to um, decide how you're going to do the things that Chris mentioned? What what are what, what do you guys think about it? Ideally, ideally, I think that would be great. Um, do I think that we can do it without royally fucking it up? <laughs> I don't. You don't, know? I don't. I would love to think that we can, but I'm not terribly confident. Um, they have something. They shouldn't there's stop the, you from trying. There's the white no, privilege no, conference every year. We should try, <clears> but I'm like, it's 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 an interesting idea to play with right now in my head. But ideally, I think that would be great if we could get a lot of 
of um, white people together and really have these discussions and talk about what well, being that... in solidarity and support really means <clears throat> as a white person, what our role is, how we how we should support um, the movement, how we definitely shouldn't, what we shouldn't be doing. Um, that's a big thing too. And do it in such a way that we're still operating with humility and not making it about us. Cause I think that's a tent. That's the thing we all tend to do. We tend to make our advocacy about ourselves. Um, then I think it could be a beautiful thing. Well, I don't want to presuppose that it's not happening. Are there I mean, events like this happening? happening? Chris? It's- yeah, I mean it's ha- it's it's happening again on you know smaller scale. So for example, like I was just uh, there's the annual white privilege conference, right? Um, which is is actually is, is quite multiracial. I mean it's still majority white, but a lot of the leadership um, in the initial founding of it um, is coming from black educators. Um, but nonetheless, it's a huge convening of a lot of mostly you know a lot of uh, a lot of people who are you know, teachers in the elementary schools or uh, um, colleges from all over the country. Um, But um, at the end of it, oftentimes white anti-racist folks will have a a strategy sessions or just even opportunities for people to build and and learn about each other. Um, And so this year, um, Surge that was already mentioned before, Showing Up for Racial Justice, which is a national uh, white anti-racist network um, that was started Soon after Obama was elected, kind of in response to you know the, the, the upsurge of the Tea Party and really a, a, a resurgence of white populist uh, racism, and so showing up for racial justice started as a way to try to be like, okay, white folks, we've been doing you know a lot of people have been doing this on your local level for for a long time. We need to really try to um, amp this up and try to build more, um, and so. Yeah, just this past, you know, a few months ago, there was about, you know, 50, 60 uh, white anti-racists from around the country, most of whom uh, represented organizations from all over the country. And so there was a lot of conversation, you know, a lot of people sharing about, okay, this is what we've been trying to do in our community around Black Lives Matter. This is what we're doing. This is, you know, this is every, everything from uh, groups in St. Louis and Missouri to groups throughout the South. Um, to you know around the country and so it was really it was really powerful because it wasn't white people who were showing up saying like oh I'm trying to figure out what to do it was a conversation amongst white people who were like yeah this is this we're part of organizations we're part of campaigns this is how we're trying to support the Black Lives Matter uh, effort in our in our local community Um, and it was really beautiful and powerful Um, and I think you know being able to continue to grow that and and also creating lots of different spaces so the spaces for the people who are already involved um, and then also spaces where people who are wanting to get involved can come together but I think the key thing around this like fear of like well if white people get together to talk about race they're gonna fuck it up is really trying to um, you know which which is which is true and also doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it because I mean the the white folks doing anti-racist work you're gonna fuck up I mean, white supremacy sets it up so that whenever you try to rebel against it as a white person, you're going to fuck up. I mean, that's, just, that's inherent. So then the choice is, mm-hmm. yes, we're going to suck, but how can we also be awesome? So now it's like, how can we be awesome given that we also suck, and how can we amplify the awesome? And so leadership mm-hmm. is just so important so that when you get a bunch of white people together who are, like, losing their minds about, like, oh, my God, I'm a racist, and I've got white privilege, and now I'm freaking out. You know, to have people who can hold that space. I mean, I'm a spiritual person, and so for me, this is spiritual. This is sacred work. Justice work is sacred. So 
helping to create a space that can hold people in their confusion, in their discomfort, in their pain, in their making mistakes, and still keep their eyes on the prize, keep, keep in, in moving in a direction that's actually going to be supportive and build momentum is just so important. So there are small spaces all over the country that are happening, and we need to build something larger. Um, I will say that, you know, in working with activists, I mean, of all backgrounds, activists of color, white activists, one of the key issues for all of us is dealing with the mass despair that people feel. So a lot of people, I mean, activists and non-activists alike, can make a long list of what is screwed up in this society. But very few people believe that there's something we can really do about it. And so the Black Lives Matter movement, by doing something about it, by having uprisings, by having civil disobedience, by having this conference coming up in July, these are people who are asserting on a huge level, we are, we are up against a brutal, militarized, racist system, and we still believe we can do something about it. And so now mm-hmm. it's like trying to galvanize more and more people to face despair and start to really build their capacity to believe. Building people's capacity to believe that we can do something is a huge task for all of us. And then amongst white people, because the conscious white anti-racists are usually really fluent at talking about all the mistakes that white people can make. And that is understandable, and it's necessary to see the ways that white people make mistakes, because we do. But we need to start developing our capacity to see the ways that white people can rock it for racial justice, and then increase the opportunities for white people to do that, increase the skills, the training, the support, the encouragement. We need more and more white people rocking it for racial justice. So they are coming together in small places. We need to do it bigger. Um, But we also just need to be able to regularly acknowledge the mistakes because it's important to be humble and real about that. But always remember we need to encourage people to see that there's something that they can positively do. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Drew, what are your thoughts? I mean, nothing really much to add to it, really. It's, uh, you know, I, I said that I think there needs to be more, and it sounds like there's spaces, and as Chris said, there's good, and find a way to amplify the good. And uh, I don't know. I don't have much else to add. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Anastasia, any thoughts? I mean,. I mean, I, I, I think all that's really interesting, and I agree with a lot of it. Uh, and I do I do think that we should be doing something. I think that we should be doing more. And I do know that these conversations are happening in small groups. I know that I'm having them um, usually more on a one-on-one basis, but that they are happening. And if people could, if we could come together and have them in a, in a much larger arena, um, I think that that has the potential for a lot of good. And while one of my goals is to um, get, I, I think I said earlier, one of my goals is to get better and make less mistakes. A bigger goal for me is to, to not be so afraid of making mistakes that I stop being active and that I stop being vocal and I stop um, and I become passive because I'm so afraid. And so I think that it would be a mistake for us to not try to get together as a community and talk about ourselves and how we're involved in this 
um, and and what we can do better and and how we can be a powerful force of support um, to not do that out of fear of screwing it up. Do I think that we will screw it up at least a little bit? Um, but I mean, you, you have don't screw to, it up. You, you're not trying hard enough. Yeah, you yeah. have to walk, in this you venue, to walk before you run. No, yeah, Ricky's right. It's like skiing. If you don't fall down, you weren't really working hard. So I would, I would love to see it start happening. Um, and if I s- started having the resources, um, especially nearby me, to become more involved in a, in a large movement like that, it would be fantastic. Um, so, I mean, I'm keeping my eyes on the horizon. Nice. You know, I did have a, a final thought, Leslie. I'll say uh, I was working with my friend Ivy about just sort of like personal mission statements within this work and our lives, uh, you know, our work-life balance, activist life balance, whatever you want to call it. And uh, I, we kind of, I don't know if we came up with it or someone else said it, maybe Elijah said it, but I, I liked it a lot, was uh, to learn as much as I can about systemic racism, institutions of racism, and then disseminate as much of that as I can to as many people as I can through whatever means or, uh, and modalities are available to me. Okay. Ooh. Ricky, what you got for us? Um, I, I just want white people as a whole to stop fucking up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, to be honest, and, and stop teaching black people to fuck up. Dude. Let's, let's be honest. We, we, we take those lessons Man, Ricky, as, as, I, I, as white people. I, I don't want to break it to you, but you are in for a life of disappointment, buddy. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> just a, la- a life of disappointment. Funny. I, I personally have no I, I'm one of the people who looks at this kind of bleakly in, in the sense that this eh, odds are isn't going to happen in my lifetime and I have to be able to accept that but it's th- there's something in my I, I don't remember if it was my mother or my grandfather that told me this but they were like if it, it if it's a fight worth losing then you fight it anyway and so uh, it's pretty much what I do That is what you do. It's true. Uh, For my part, I think that, you know, conversations like this are really important. And I think that um, engaging with white people, and I really take to heart a lot of what Chris said, because I think that other white anti-racists do need to to think about what you were saying, which is that you can't um, engage people and organize people that you don't love. It's impossible, actually. And, you know, when Ricky talks about black people that are still under the supremacist mindset and don't see the value in the work that we do, I fight for them, too. And it's okay that they don't agree with me because I still recognize their humanity, even though they don't see the work that is being done on their behalf. And that's fine. It's not a problem. So I think that that is something that white anti-racists need to take into account because without that piece there, it's going to be kind of impossible um, to do the work with other white people. Um, So I think that that's a really big takeaway. And I hope that um, any white anti-racists that listen to the show, and I do think there are a few, quite a few actually, um, that they, they think about that as they go about trying to be engaged in this work and trying to do this work because uh, it's it's really going to be a critical um, piece to, to being successful, uh, really, in my opinion. 
so yeah. final thoughts, and I also want to um, let everybody go around and um, say where we can find you and where we can uh, follow you and get in touch with you. And so, Drew, why don't we start with you? Uh, as you said, I'm a Twitterati, my favorite platform, Twitter. <laughs> Probably the easiest way to get a hold of me because it, it's attached to me at the hip. <laughs> at very white guy, and I, I actually have a. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, I think, at very white guy as well. And uh, I just started putting that uh, website whiteprivilege.info together. It's coming together. It's looking pretty nice. good from what I saw. It's cool. Uh, it's, it's, it's like a, a beta. I just built the spec, and I got to get. And what are you and, not going to plug the podcast or? Oh, the John. That's a. I mean, okay. Mm-hmm. And you can find me every week with my lovely wife <laughs> Leslie on the interracial John. At Interracial John, that's J-A-W-N. Shout out, Philly. Very good. Uh, Anastasia, how about you? Where can everyone find you? And any final thoughts you want to share? The, probably one of the best ways to get a hold of me uh, is via my Twitter account as well, at Anastasia M. Says. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm always paying attention. Sometimes I don't speak that much lately. I've been doing more observing and listening and thinking, uh, and then I'll suddenly uh, speak maybe more than you can handle all at one time uh but i'm definitely into interacting with people and hearing people's thoughts i don't mind being corrected or having different points of view i'm very open to all of that so um i would love to hear from people if they want to talk about this subject or any of the other ones that i talk about excellent chris yeah so you can find out more about uh the work that i'm doing at chriscrass.org um, and you can also find me um, on Facebook just under Chris Crash. Um, and I think just the two final things is just, um, you know, it's always important for us to remember that we're not trying to get, we don't need everybody. Um, you know, we, we, we would like to have everybody with us, but we, we don't need everybody to be involved in the Black Lives Matter movement. Even at the height of the, even at the, height of the Civil Rights Movement, there was still a minority of society that was involved and that actively supported it. And so sometimes for white folks, you can get overwhelmed with like, oh, my God, I've got to try to get every white person I know to be this, like, amazing anti-racist, feminist, socialist, you know, radical. And really it's just trying to get, you know, pe- building, building cores that can move people. And so even, at, even like, say, for example, if you're at a church, it's not trying to get everyone in your church to be completely committed. If you can get a good group of 20 to 30 people who are – on fire and then start to win over leadership and start to win over influence, that can be huge. The second thing is that, you know, with, with talking to white people about anti-racism, yes, we need to talk about how we need to be increasing our ability to be uncomfortable, but we also need to talk to white people about how this is just a much more beautiful life. This is about embracing all of humanity. This is about beloved community. This is about honoring our ancestors. This is about creating the kind of world that we want our kids to genuinely grow up in. We also need to be able to win people over to the beauty of what it means to work for a different kind of America. And I'm about to go home to my uh, three-and-a-half-year-old kid, and, you know, he's a little white guy who's going to get raised in this society to be a racist and a sexist, and there's nothing I can do about that. I can do everything I can to raise him in a feminist, beloved community world, and he's going to get indoctrinated. And so I'm fighting for the hearts and souls of white kids who are being indoctrinated every day to be a part of this death culture. And then for all of our kids, for all of our kids. And so that's why Black Lives Matter is at the forefront of saving all of our kids. Good point. Well said. Excellent. Ricky, how about you? Final thoughts? Um, 
this this has been extremely productive. Um, it's, I mean, it's given me a lot to think about, simply because I sometimes I I think these things in the back of my mind, and I'm like, yeah, well, maybe I'm tripping. Um, so it's actually it's actually nice to to hear them reinforced from some from someone within the community, because you know I I don't know what it's like to be white, really don't. Um, but that that being said. This is something that needs to happen. Uh, you know, when I'm all for the results. That and, and you know, a lot of people misunderstand Malcolm X's quote about you know by any means necessary. I don't give a fuck wh- how we get there. If we if if it if it means giving white people lollipops and convincing them somehow to to, to give up white privilege for lollipops, magical lollipops, fuck it. That's cool. Whatever works. Um, and this is the most logistical way that this has to work because as long as white people believe that they're superior we will never have the country that we say we are and I you know as I fought for this country I've grown up in, my, in this country this is my home for better or worse I get treated like shit but this is still my home and so in order for us to live up to what we say we are as a home um I actually don't have anything to add. I do want to thank all of you guys for being here. I really appreciate it. Um, as I said, this is a um, a show and topic that Ricky and I have been wanting to do and hadn't felt that it was the right time. But we, I saw personally a couple of indicators, including um, the article that um, Drew mentioned that Chris wrote, and I will be linking to it in the show notes as well, which really touched on a lot of the topics that um, Chris mentioned and a lot that we covered tonight as well. It's called To the White Anti-Racists Who Are Nervous About Stepping Up Against Racism. And um, in uh, honor of that, I'm going to read something that Netta posted on Facebook today or yesterday, she's actually in Madison because it's one of her states for uh, amnesty that she covers. So she's actually in Madison right now. She'll be there for a few days. Uh, She says, I don't need an ally. I need comrades. If you won't get entrenched in this black liberation work, I'm good. Allies to me still has the option of putting on their privilege and leaving when it's too uncomfortable. And I really like that quote because it does speak to a lot of what Chris was talking about, which is understanding that supremacy damages us all including white people i think too often this conversation about and with white people is centered around um that they need to do it for somebody else that they need to do it because it's the right thing that they need to do it because um it's just good uh and i think that the pitch or the 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 reality of the situation is that they need to do this because it's good for them um and that it is for them too and i think that that's been a really powerful message to take from from the conversation and i hope that people take that to heart and understand um that when we're talking about fighting for our humanity we're talking about fighting for all of our humanity our collective humanity um no matter what your race creed or color or gender or um anything else that might be thrown in their age all of that um gender identity anything like that that the humanity um is is something that we all have to be working to save and to preserve and to continue to move forward 
Um, and that's our show. You can, as, as I said at the top of the show, find us on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Just search Ferguson Response. Um, you can also go to our website, fergusonresponse.org. And if you're looking for actions in your city or you'd like to listen action that you are planning, just go to fergusonresponse.tumblr.com. You can find Ricky occasionally on Twitter at auadot.org. You can always find him on Facebook. I hate Twitter. Oh, I know, I hate you hate Twitter. Twitter. That's why I say occasionally. I let people know. Don't expect a response. Uh, but you can always <laughs> find him on Facebook, facebook.com backslash AUA movement. You can also go to auamovement.org. And you can find me on Twitter almost all the time at Leslie Mack. Uh, and that's it for this week. And we will see you next week where I do believe we are going to be talking about the economics of white supremacy. I have so much fucking work to do. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes, that's you my, that's do. My area of that's your area. Economics. It's going to be good. All right. We'll see you guys next week.